2: What a big man President Cleveland is. He must weigh nearly 300 pounds, and a line drawn through the center of his stomach to the small of his back would measure at least two feet. He is under six feet tall, has a great width of shoulder, and his flesh, unlike that of most men, is solid, not flabby. Frank G. Carpenter, Correspondent in the Nation's Capital, 1885. Soon after his election, so the story goes, the president made a trip south. A large crowd of country people had gathered at a railroad junction to see him, hoping perhaps to shake his hand. One tall, lank, old fellow stared long and hard at the great man. Then he pushed through the crowd and grabbed Cleveland's hand. "'Well, so you're the president,' he said, looking up at him. "'Yes, I'm the president, my friend,' Grover Cleveland said. "'Well,' the old man exclaimed again, "'I voted for lots of presidents in my time, "'and I ain't ever seen one before.' "'He paused, then he laughed and slapped his own side. "'Well, you're a whopper,' he said to the delight of the president as well as the crowd. President Cleveland dresses well, Carpenter writes. His usual suit is one of black broadcloth, with the coat double-breasted and tightly buttoned about his body. He wears good boots that always shine brighter than those of his collars. His linen is white and he puts on a fresh turnover collar every day. His favorite necktie is black, modest in its tie. The president knots it himself, and he does not require the assistant of a valet. This man Cleveland is a hard worker. He rises at half past seven each morning, and here I would pause to say that George Washington used to get up at four. Jefferson jumped out from under the covers when the sun's rays first fell upon the clock in his bedchamber. John Quincy Adams had taken a walk and a swim in the Potomac, before the time of day at which Cleveland is out of bed. And President Harrison, this is the first President Harrison, used to go forth to do the White House marketing long before half past seven. Still, rising before half past seven each morning, Cleveland reads the newspapers, Eat is ready for breakfast, not a large meal. After breakfast, directly to the office, looks over his private letters and answers a certain number. He seldom uses a stenographer for any purpose. He takes up the business of each day. He has an interview with a cabinet member or the chief justice, some other prominent person. 11 o'clock, finds a 100 office seekers waiting to see him. The president listens to the request, but gets through with each in short order. And then about 1 o'clock, he's ready for lunch. It's easy for the ordinary man to see the president. He enters the front door of the White House without being questioned, crosses into a big vestibule to the left, then turns right and goes on a flight of winding stairs. At his head he finds Colonel Loeffler, a little wiry gray mustached man with twinkling black eyes, who for the last 20 years has carried visitors' cards into the President of the United States. Grover Cleveland is a harder president to relate to now in 2021 than it was, say, certainly in 1885 when he was... At least coming into office mildly popular, he would not be as popular towards the end of his first term, though respected, that's the thing, grudgingly respected, by opponents and enemies, by opponents and friends. He would roll more off the tip of the tongue in the 19-teens, even in the 1950. The house where future president Stephen Grover Cleveland was born in Caldwell, New Jersey, is still there. It's been preserved pretty much as it was when he was born in 1837. Visitors can see his cradle, his marriage certificate, and the bed on which he was born. But That's not what most people want to see. They want to see the cake, the piece of Grover Cleveland's wedding cake from his wedding in the White House to Francis Balsam Cleveland, which is still preserved and in that house in a box designed by Tiffany. It doesn't look anything like a modern fluffy wedding cake topped with a tiny bride and groom. It's a fruit cake, And that sugary, embalming process of a fruitcake has preserved it into its third century. Probably the oldest extant cake in America, as far as we know. Here's what a curator said in a newspaper article. We're sort of blessed with it and cursed with it. We don't do anything special to it. We check the Grover Cleveland wedding cake once in a while for insect infestations. We've never had any problems. One corner of the cake seems to have been nibbled, and the legend is that there was a Cub Scout in the 1950s who arrived and bit the cake on a dare. It must have not been very tasty after all this time. That was in the days when groups would know who Grover Cleveland was and would go to visit his house. But even if any Cub Scout club did and tried to eat the cake. Now, they could not. It's safely kept behind glass. Cleveland's house is in Caldwell, New Jersey, incidentally, and really with no... And there's hardly any reason to mention this at all. The house is about eight minutes away by car from the fictional location of Tony Soprano's house on the TV show The Sopranos, also in Caldwell, New Jersey. Grover Cleveland arrived to the office a bachelor president. But unlike the other previous bachelor president, James Buchanan, Cleveland did not remain a bachelor for long. In 1885, the daughter of Cleveland's friend, Oscar Folsom, visited him in Washington, and the two were soon married. The wedding occurred in 1886 in the Blue Room of the White House. Cleveland was 49. She was 21. He's the second president to wed while in office and the only president to marry in the White House. Here's what Alan Nevin says in his biography of Cleveland. Social life in Washington was materially brightened by the advent of Mrs. Cleveland, for she delighted in receptions and dinners. The season of 1887 was the liveliest social season the city had seen in years, and the Washington Post actually thought there was too much society. Every day in the week is given up to receptions, balls, teas, luncheons, and theater parties. On the face of things, it looks foolish to see the streets of a large capital thronged with private carriages whose occupants are on a pleasure bent. Prior to this, socializing the city had been a quiet affair. People like Theodore Roosevelt or um, Secretary of State Thomas Bayard would sometimes cook for them, get their guests themselves. How do we view a president like Grover Cleveland? What can we have in common with somebody who's mustached and bulky and doesn't like government to be too big? If anything, he's an exercise in obscurity. But I think then, split across partisan lines, there were a number of people that viewed Grover Cleveland as a hero, that viewed him as a kind of a man that could not be moved, a man that could not be corrupted. And it was something almost as highly valued as anything in the federal government at that time. But I do question too, have we even really lost that? Isn't it still what essentially we want? Let's get back to it. We wouldn't all like his politics for things like 30 year mortgages and unemployment checks and Medicare. Grover Cleveland would not be there. He faced a Republican Senate often used his veto powers. He vetoed hundreds of private pension bills for American Civil War veterans. His most well-known veto was that of the Texas seed bill. For, For those of us, you know, we had some recent storms that caused disasters, and you'd see the president come out, whatever party, Republican or Democrat, and issue an emergency declaration. Grover Cleveland would not be down with that. After an 1887 storm ruined crops in several Texas counties, Congress appropriated $100,000. That's like $2 billion now. Just to purchase seed grain for farmers to give them some help, Cleveland vetoed the expenditure and said, I can find no warrant for such an appropriation in the Constitution, and I do not believe that the power and duty of the general government ought to be extended to the relief of individual suffering, which is in no manner properly related to to the public service or benefit. Some people might find that to be terribly exciting, I think, you know, a very libertarian person, uh, Ron Paul senior, the senior Paul, cited Cleveland as the president he was most influenced by in an interview about 5 years ago and that kind of put him as much as he's been in the pop culture as anything recently. There was also a recent incident where the comic Moraka found a statue in a garage sale, and thought it was Grover Cleveland till he was told that it was not. And uh, looking at it, I was pretty clear, sure it was not. It took years for the mystery to be solved, but it turned out to be an obscure New York City official, uh, perhaps one of the commissioners. You could call him stubborn. You could call him steadfast. Some called him heroic. He was constantly at odds with one group or another in politics. Usually the Republican Party, but also his own party, because his own party were silverites and Grover Cleveland was hard money or gold standard supporter. So he had problems right from the get go to a point where before he even gets into office, an issue of eliminating the purchase of silver by the federal government nearly dislodges him from his own party right in the beginning of his first term. And appeals to, you know, support the president that we might hear today, like support the president of your party, don't cut him off at at the knees kind of thing, fell on deaf ears. And then on the tariff issue, he was united with his Democratic Party and against the Republicans in a futile bid to reduce tariff rates that wasn't going to pass because he simply didn't have the votes to do it. So... I want to focus on one of these particular battles, and this is the tenure of office battle. Now, if we remember back to the impeachment case of Andrew Johnson, it had to do the major count against him was violating the Tenure of Office Act, which said that the president had to seek approval from the Senate to fire cabinet members. This bill, which had haunted uh, Andrew Johnson, was not liked by any of his predecessors, even though they were in a different party. So Grant speaks out against his tenure of office act, Uh, so does Hayes, and so does Garfield. Cleveland's a Democratic president, unlike the last three. The Republicans who control the Senate are noticing that the president's popularity as a new president is growing, and they see an opportunity. This is how Alan Nevins describes it in... His biography of Grover Cleveland, a Republican postal official at Rome, New York, had mishandled funds and failed to make the required monthly reports to the postmaster general. Investigators were sent to his office and unearthed evidence of what Cleveland called the most disgraceful confusion in all that pertained to finances and heavy deficiencies in the accounts. It was clear neglect. And yet Cleveland couldn't dismiss him. He presents the case to the Senate in March of 1885, asking it to confirm a new appointee he wants to put into the Rome, New York post office, but it adjourns without acting. Cleveland now suspends the postmaster and writes to a friend, to me it clearly seems my duty to execute all the powers which the present condition of the law has left in my hands, as far as it may be done independently of the Senate to protect the interests of the government. Now, the Republicans are outraged by this, and they, want, they, they insist on a portion of the law that requires Cleveland to provide information to the Senate about his appointments. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. There's another figure who comes into the story, and that is Senator George Edmonds of Vermont, a Republican. George Edmonds has a partial motivation that has nothing to do with President Grover Cleveland at all. He has a problem in his own party. He is a civil service reform proponent. That put him at odds with others in his party. When James G. Blaine got the nomination in 1884, and Edmonds was one of the candidates considered for that, he refuses to endorse Blaine. He just remains Silent. Here's what one newspaper says. To the Blaine Republicans, the silence of Edmonds is exasperating. In order that the overwhelming tide of independent revolt might be stemmed, they had entertained the hope that the candidate who received the bulk of the independent votes would raise his voice in approval. They watch as Edmonds makes a speech in 1884, height of the election campaign, where Blaine and Cleveland are like really close. And there's a Vermont Republican convention. Much to everyone's disappointment in the party, Edmonds does not mention Blaine or Chicago and merely says that liberty of belief, of opinion and action, that belongs to the citizenship. You know, a nice sentiment, right? To just say everyone has their own beliefs. But when you're in the middle of an election campaign and you're part of a party, you know, (laughs) that kind of comes off as almost an endorsement of Cleveland. It wasn't. He never mentions Cleveland's name either. When Blaine loses that election, Edmonds is now an enemy of um, of anyone in the Republican Party who supported James G. Blaine, which is like a good third to half of the party at this point. So, And they begin a battle in the state of Vermont to try to dislodge um, Edmonds from his seat. And they're not successful in doing so, but they really stain him with a lot of the attacks. They're very well funded. They call him a drunk. They call him a uh, disloyal to the party, a secret Democrat, all these type of things. He still wins. He's very popular in at least among the Vermont legislature, but it kind of helps him. It kind of hurts him broadly. When he does win that battle and comes back in 1886, he finds this issue, the Tenure of Office Act, to be something that he can put a stake in and and do two things at once. Diminish the Democratic president and diminish Blaine, because this is an issue that Blaine doesn't support. Blaine is of like mind with where President Cleveland's going to be in this issue. He doesn't want um, an inability to remove officials. (laughs) He thinks he might be in Cleveland's chair one day, so Blaine isn't going to support that. Another uh, situation is that there's been some changes to this law. Now, the law applies to all federal officeholders. President Cleveland had suspended 643 officials during his first years in office, many of them write to the Senate saying that they had done nothing to justify being removed from their positions. Now, this is a little bit at odds with the image that we have of Grover Cleveland as being a supporter of civil service reform and both in the letter of the law and the implied letter of the law. And Cleveland was, though, that 643 is a lot less than another president would do. He kept a lot of Republicans in office that his party, who really thought of those offices as the spoils, did not want him to do. But even having done that amount, Edmonds goes after him on this issue. Edmonds is a senior member of the Judiciary Committee of the Senate, and he is the one driving the Senate's request for this information from the president. Cleveland instructs his cabinet not to do this, not to reply. Here's what uh, Nevins writes again. A weak president would have tried to compromise. Instead, Cleveland ordered the department heads to refuse flatly the Senate's demand for information upon suspensions. What are we talking about here? Executive power, executive privilege as well. Cleveland and his cabinet advisors knew that the Constitution gave the Senate no authority whatever in the matter of dismissals. He was willing to send to the Senate all formal papers for anything having to do with an appointment, because that's in a responsibility the President and the Senate share, and all open endorsements of the men he had selected for office. but any confidential letters or memoranda relating to them must be withheld you Now this is important. Cleveland's elected and is not in a great political position. His own party isn't that strong his uh He's got the Republicans in charge of one of the branches. Thus, at the beginning of February 1886, the president and the Senate majority were confronting each other in open battle with the whole country looking on. Senate demands information. President won't give it. Senate demands the confidential papers. The president refuses. Then, the Republican caucus adopts a set of resolutions in order to threaten Cleveland. One of them is a censure of the attorney general, refusing to provide the information. Another is a complaint regarding the removal of union veterans. Lastly, there's a declaration that the Senate could not and would not confirm persons nominated to succeed any suspended officers unless that paperwork was provided. Eventually, there's a standstill. So, Cleveland's, um, the Senate is saying, if you don't give us the papers, we're not going to appoint anyone. To replace officials, you remove. And Cleveland is citing Grant's criticism of this law, He's citing that you're going to make the presidency ineffective, not just mine. And he's citing that, you know, he's also has his counter threat. He can just appoint people when the Senate goes on recess, although he'd rather not wait so long. But here's what Nevin says. Finally, and most important of all, Cleveland occupied a ground on which he could call for public support with far greater chance of success than could hostile senators. At first... Many Americans refused to take the affair seriously regarding it as a characteristic piece of maneuvering by rival political leaders, a sham battle. But when men realized that Cleveland was aroused in defense of what he regarded as the fundamental rights of the presidency, they took to his side. Cleveland makes a formal appeal to the country. March 1st can't go on TV. This is a letter that is printed in newspapers. Cleveland says these papers are private and privileged. They consist of letters of representation addressed to the executive or intended for his inspection. They are voluntarily written and presented by private citizens who are not in the least instigated thereto by any official invitation or at all subject to official control. While some of them are entitled to executive consideration, many of them are so irrelevant or in the light of other facts so worthless that they have not been given the least weight in determining the question to which they are supposed to relate. Cleveland further says he takes his stand upon his oath to support and defend the Constitution and upon his responsibility to a people who had chosen him to exercise the powers of office and not to relinquish them. Neither the discontent of my party friends or the allurements constantly offered to confirmations of appointees conditioned upon the avowal that suspensions have been made on party grounds alone, nor the threat proposed in the resolutions now before the Senate that no confirmations will be made unless the demands of that body are complied with are sufficient to discourage or deter me from following in the way which I am convinced leads to better government for the people. As Nevins describes, what happens from this moment is that Republicans break rank and they can not all... Um, can no longer support senator edmonds of vermont who is backing this tenure of office act Um, john sherman significant senator from ohio often a mentioned presidential candidate makes a speech and says that he's willing to moderate on this issue so senate has no more right to demand a cleveland for what reason did you do this thing than cleveland would have to say for what reason did you pass this law uh, John Logan of Illinois, a powerful Republican senator, says basically, Cleveland's right, Edmonds is wrong. And in March twelfth, eighteen eighty-six, they confirm a Democrat as Survey General of Utah, who Cleveland has appointed, despite the fact that Cleveland hadn't surrendered any of these letters. It didn't hurt that the man was one of Senator John Logan's friends. Edmonds was embarrassed. A cartoon shows Cleveland as Oliver Cromwell and Senator Edmonds of Vermont as Charles I, and Cleveland standing triumphant, long stockings, buckled shoes, and a roundhead hat. One of the reasons that Cleveland succeeds, despite the rightness of his message, is that people didn't really like Edmonds too much. For the Vermonter, the defeat was a personal tragedy of lasting import. Never again could he assume his old position as an arbiter of the Senate on constitutional questions. He'd been one of the most irritating as well as the ablest, members of the upper house. No one equaled him as a master of cutting sarcasm. Now he had met more than his equal.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In
2: 1887, 20 years after the law was enacted, it was repealed. The Tenure of Office Act, and in 1926, a similar law was ruled unconstitutional by the United States Supreme Court. I think it's useful to point out as we look at presidents in history, and this will be an episode of a lot of different things that we're so often like looking like, Well, how would uh, you know Andrew Jackson view the issues of today, or how would Thomas Jefferson, or how would John Adams, or how would William Howard Taft? Or in this case, how would Grover Cleveland view the issues of today? But it's the issues or the policies that a president pursues are only one measure. And I think that what American individuals want from a president is good steerage, good management of the office, somebody who takes a stand, um, somebody who uh, seems to have good character. Yes, it will be affected by partisan issues. So a lot of people are going to say that about from President Trump, and people will say that now about President Biden. But I do think that that's the issue. And if you look at Grover Cleveland, that was something where he, it was a real advantage for him. Even as he's leaving office, he's been defeated in election. He would win the popular vote, by the way. He's defeated in the presidential election. Benjamin Harrison's moving in, and people are still saying that they respect this person. And of course, that's going to be uh, his line into getting the only non-consecutive second term. And we're going to talk about that in, in a different episode. But I think the building blocks of that are, you know, not rooted in any particular issue, but in character, in the stances he took, and in his reliability. Here's what a professor wrote about Grover Cleveland. The odd thing about it was that defeat did not seem to lessen Mr. Cleveland's importance. Some persons did not like to see that their ex-president return to ordinary duties of legal practice as he did in New York, apparently expecting a healthy, practical man to accept a merely ornamental part in society after having once been their chief magistrate. Through all the four years of Mr. Harrison's administration, Mr. Cleveland was the most conspicuous man in the country, out of office. And a sort of popular expectation followed him, in all his movements. Here's another line from this professor's essay. We need not pretend to know what all history shall say of Mr. Cleveland. We need not pretend that we can draw any common judgment of the man from the confused cries that now ring everywhere, from friend and from foe. We know only that he has played a great part, that his greatness is authenticated by the passion of love and the hatred he had stirred up and that no great personality has appeared in all politics since Lincoln, and that, whether greater or less, his personality is his own. He has made policies and altered parties after the fashion of an earlier age in our history, and the men who assess his fame in the future will be no partisans, but men who love candor, courage, honesty, strength, unshaken capacity, and high purpose such as his. The writer of that in the Atlantic Monthly, is Woodrow Wilson. William Jennings Bryan and his saber. William Jennings Bryan didn't win his bid to be the next president after Cleveland, and that was just fine with Grover Cleveland because though they were both Democrats, there was no love lost between those two. And Cleveland did not endorse Bryan, and Friends of Cleveland ran their own third-party ticket in the 1896 election when Bryan was the official Democratic nominee. And that was because of silver and gold politics. Cleveland was a supporter of the gold standard for the American economy. Bryan, supporter of using silver as currency, providing a greater money supply, more liquidity to farmers, and and at least... That was the theory at the time. McKinley wins on the gold standards with many Democrats going over to him, but many populists joining the Democrats and Bryan. And that election of 1896 is a lot closer than people think. I have a copy of The First Battle. It's a first edition. Very pleased to have it by William Jennings Bryan, where he describes the fight and he Talks about how close just a few votes in these various states, and he's beating McKinley in the Electoral College. McKinley's going to beat Bryan in 1900, and then Taft's going to beat Bryan in 1908. He'll be the Democratic standard bearer three times. But McKinley would also beat Bryan right after he beats him in the election. But this battle's a little more obscure and contemporary, so a little more obscure to us. When he denied William Jennings Bryan, a chance to be a military hero and to add that to his populist appeal. Brand got press and lots of it for a democratic candidate at this time in the 1890s. That was something. There was a lot of thought that he'd be back as the nominee. Same party had run Cleveland a second time with the advent of the controversy in Cuba, where there's a rebel movement in Cuba. We're looking to get involved in Cuba's fight against Spain. Brand remains uninvolved, He wants to focus on economic issues to beat McKinley in 1900. But as the political currents change, and there's more talk about a conflict with Spain, he begins to campaign for Cuban independence. Waving a small Cuban flag in one hand and a small American in another at a rally, he argued that America was responsible for spreading the virtues of democracy to a neighbor that was so close. And he excited large crowds. So when war breaks out, Brian leads a regiment. He insists on it. And the 3rd Nebraska is formed. And with his popularity in his home state, he's able to form this regiment. It's mustered into service July 13th, 1898. And immediately it's sent to Panama Park, Florida. But it sees no action during the war, which was unusually short. By the time, you know, he's getting there in July of 1898, it's almost over. President McKinley's no dummy. He realizes if he sends Brian to Cuba... There's a chance he's already got a lot of appeal. The press is going to cover everything he does. If he's successful, there's no stopping this guy. No matter, a peace agreement between the United States and Spain is signed less than a month after the regiment reaches Florida. McKinley still keeps the third Nebraska in Florida, and Brian ends up visiting the White House in protest against the conditions. It's unsanitary. It's disease-ridden. It's 300 cases of typhoid in the regiment. There's snakes. Then he asks McKinley, can they muster out the 3rd Nebraska now that the war's over? McKinley does not honor his request. He sends the 3rd Nebraska to camp onward in Savannah, Georgia. This is October 1898, but you can imagine in Savannah, these are hot conditions. It's December of 1898, after the United States and Spain sign a formal peace treaty in Paris. Spain gives up Guam, Puerto Rico, the Philippine Islands relinquishes sovereignty over Cuba, becomes an independent nation heavily influenced by the United States. Brian then sees that we're going to acquire territory in this war and he doesn't want it. He wants to liberate countries, not acquire them. And he resigns from his position as colonel of the Third Nebraska. As part of that, he hands over his saber. He continues speaking out against McKinley on imperialism. It's after Brian's resignation, then it's time McKinley sends the 3rd Nebraska to Cuba as part of the occupation force. This is a year after the war has concluded. It's finally mustered out May 11th, 1899. William Jennings Bryan's Sabre, an 1872 model, is held by the Nebraska State Historical Society. You know, it's evidence of both Bryan's attempt to gain political advantage from the war but also McKinley's deafness in politics, that he waited for his political opponent to resign rather than be forced out, which would have looked bad for McKinley. Lincoln's coat. On the occasion of his second inauguration, Brooks Brothers, the New York clothing firm, gave its loyal customer and the President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, a great coat with an intricate embroidered lining, bearing the image of an eagle and the inscription, One Country, One Destiny. The company Brooks Brothers was already a long-time institution at this point. It played a role in the union effort. Brooks makes suits for men and sells them as makers and merchants in one. The firm assumed absolute control over its offering. And it plays a lead role in the transition from individually custom-made clothes that only the very wealthy could afford to mass production and consumption so that you're at least getting more of a middle-class New Yorker that could buy
0: their suits. I'm Jane Polez
1: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.
2: It was 1818 when, at the age of 45, Henry Sands Brooks opened H&DH Brooks & Company on the northeast corner of Catherine and Cherry Streets in New York City. It's on the Lower East Side, and it's near all of the docks and the ships coming in from abroad. This is on purpose, as this way Henry Brooks can get his hand on the best clothing materials, particularly that good Scottish wool. In fact, the Brooks Brothers symbol even today is that of a lamb. A nod to the Order of the Golden Fleece, a league of European wool traders dating to the 15th century. Pioneers of the California gold rush, unable to wait on the whims of a tailor flock to Brooks Brothers to pick up ready-made clothing. When Brooks's business keeps growing, he cows on all of his sons, Daniel, John, Alicia, and Edward, assume leaderships, all of whom have become retailers themselves to assist, and changed the firm's name to Brooks Brothers. It's an example of a company that got involved in a political issue and potentially suffered for it. Potentially. They made uniforms for the Union Army, and in 1863, as New York City inhabitants are drafted into the Union Army, A riot breaks out, engulfing the city, and there are fires everywhere, and crowds of gangsters attack anything having to do with the Union effort. That includes Brooks Brothers because they are well known as providers of Union uniforms. Rioters gather at Catherine and Cherry Streets in New York City, and they sack the store. Harper says a large amount of marauders attacked the store and helped themselves to what they wanted, and made out with their ill-gotten booty. Here's what uh, historian Adrian Cook says. Bolts of cloth were thrown through the windows and the street outside was festooned with lengths of material. Cherry Street was covered with hats, suits, coats, pants, overalls, jackets, vests, clothes of all kinds. In the middle of the carnival, 150 police came up and charged into the crowd. Rioters opened fire and Sergeant Finney of the 3rd Precinct was shot in the face. A porter at Brock's Brooks Brothers reported. The attack was made at half past nine o'clock in the evening, and at that time a young man named Betts, a salesman, was with me in the store. He slept in the store. The first sign of the attacks were small stones thrown through the window, then commenced a great deal of banging and thumping against the doors and windows on the Cherry Street side. The panels of the doors were broken in, and they put their heads in and called me names, and said if I did not open they would hang me or shoot me. I went to the custom room, got a rope, and let myself down into the backyard. This is what the New York Times says. The mob, number 4,000 or 5,000, made an attack on the clothing stores of Brooks Brothers in Catherine Street. Sergeant Finney was knocked down, beaten on the head and body with clubs. His wounds were dressed. He is very severely injured. Officer Daniel Fields of the same precinct was knocked down and brutally beaten. A man named John Matzel was shot and instantly killed. It is reported that he was one of the leaders of the mob. Another location of Brooks Brothers was guarded by a 12-year-old boy named Francis G. Lloyd, and there was no disturbances. Forty years later, Lloyd would become the first non-Brooks Brother to lead the firm. But among the customers of this venerable institution was Abraham Lincoln, and on the day that he went to Ford's Theater, he wore a new Black Brooks Brothers overcoat. He was carried to a house across the street after he was shot, where he died early the next morning. His coat and the other personal belongings, including the contents, were given to his eldest son, Robert Todd Lincoln. They were passed down to his daughter, Mary Mamie Lincoln, who donated to the Library of Congress in 1937. The box of these contents is not opened till 1976, what would have been his 167th birthday. What did he have? We've talked about it before in the show. But in particular, you know, there was Confederate money, kind of like a little bit of a trophy. There was a little pocket knife, which he used to fix his eyeglasses. There were also newspaper clippings. There were always good news. They charted the course of the war and one detailed the passage of a new state constitution in Missouri, a crucial border state. They called for the emancipation, slaved African-Americans who had not been freed under the Emancipation Proclamation. Two other clippings contained excerpts from the letters, purportedly written by disgruntled Southern soldiers expressing their anger at Jefferson Davis, and others were complimentary pieces about Lincoln and his performance as president. There's another article about Sherman's march to the sea, and an article that expressed happiness and relief that Lincoln was elected and would remain in office to see the war to its conclusion. That's a presidential gift that Lincoln accepted. He he didn't always take free clothes from Brook Brothers. He had been a uh, customer. When a coat was offered to President Rutherford B. Hayes, February 14th, 1878, he sent it back with a note. Coat returned. Cannot accept valuable presents. The coat was from George C. Tanner, and he wasn't some random person maybe trying to seek a favor with the president. He was a reverend who would correspond with the president quite often back and forth. The Constitution forbids, and this was an issue that came up particularly with the last president because of his business holdings, his hotel, and things like that, about emoluments. For foreign gifts, it's, you know, the president has to be careful. There's some statutes regulating what can be accepted, usually small trinkets or things of a diplomatic nature where it might be problem to refuse it, you know, can be accepted. Domestic gifts, the president can make the decision. But obviously, if anything could be connected directly with a presidential action, that would be a problem and a potential source of impeachment. Here, Rutherford B. Hayes is remaining very above the laws he was Known to do. But it is interesting to see in the list um, provided on the Rutherford B. Hayes Museum site of all the gifts that he received as presidents, Because there were some things he accepted. For instance, food. The president received a a good number of food. The fellow John L. Thomas sent oysters from the Chesapeake Bay. While an M.A. Stevenson sent potatoes for the inaugural dinner. J.P. Stewart from Washington Territory sent a box of apples in 1880. And W.O. Strong, from Cortland, California, sent President Hayes a box of Crawford peaches. He'd receive more that he'd keep, like, for instance, some books. A book on the life of Men- Major General George Custer. A book on penological and preventive principles, with special reference to Europe. The peerless edition of Pilgrim's Progress. A box of dominoes, particularly for Christmas, sent the end of November 1876, by Valentine and Company. Five-leaf and four-leaf clovers sent by Fraser Sprague of Bellevue, Michigan. And a model cannon paperweight sent by W.H. Shock. Are these the most interesting presidential gifts ever? No, but they are interesting to see just routine things that people sent to president even in the 1870s and 1880s. In 1862, the King of Siam, offered the President of the United States, he writes the letter addressed to James Buchanan, but now it's Lincoln, a gift of live elephants. The offer came with other gifts, including a sword, a photograph of the king and his daughter, and two tusks of an elephant. President Lincoln accepted these items, but politely declined the elephants in a letter dated February third, 1862, President Kennedy received from Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev a dog, a little puppy, named Pushinka. But like everything between Khrushchev and Kennedy there, there was an element of competition. This is the height of the Cold War. Pushinka was the offspring of a dog that the Soviets had successfully sent into space put them ahead of America at that time. Kennedy responded, thank you, and pledged to put a man on the moon by the end of the 60s. Kennedy kept the dog, which found a happy home at the White House, and on Cape Cod, and on Cape Cod, with the Kennedy children. Pushinka even went on to have puppies. In 2014, Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott wanted to demonstrate his admiration for President Obama, and he sent the President a -a nine-and-a-half-foot white and blue surfboard with friendship flags and the presidential seal. I don't know if Obama used it. Woodrow Wilson's relationship with the car was a little rocky at first. Before he was president of the United States, Wilson was president of Princeton University, a pretty prominent position at that time, and he gave a speech on the young man's burden before the North Carolina Society of New York at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. This is 1906. And he talks about a lot of things, but he brings up the automobile. And Wilson, at this point, is an avid bicycle rider. And already, by the time you're getting to 1906, there are automobiles all over the roads of America. But not everybody has them. And it was kind of annoying for bicycle riders. Here's what he says. I think of all the menaces today, the worst is the reckless driving in automobiles. In this, the rights of the people are set at naught. When a child is run over, the automobilist doesn't stop, but runs away. Does the father of that child consider him heartless? I don't blame him if he gets a gun. I'm a southerner and know how to shoot. Would you blame me if I did so under such circumstances? The Princeton dainties must have been shocked at these comments, or not. In these comments, he was not rejecting automobiles, but reflecting what was a very contemporary concern at that time. Also, Wilson says, These great touring cars are too big for the street. You have to walk almost around the block to get out of the way of them. And the size has a great deal to do with your trouble if you're trying to get out of the way. But I have no objection on that account to the ordinary automobile properly handled by a man of conscience, who is also a gentleman. Many of the people I see handling automobiles handle them as if they had neither conscience Or learning, You know what men do when they have a joyride. They sometimes have the time of their lives and sometimes the last time of their lives. It also has to be said, in 1906, you're getting automobiles are an item that not everybody has. So there's a populist element. Wilson blames speeders is the headline in the New York Times. But there's more. I don't believe you realize the growth of socialism in this country. To stop it, you must do more and better thinking. You must sit tight and stand pat, for perhaps you don't know the beast you're riding. He actually blamed the rise of socialism and socialistic thinking on the automobile because it's such an ostentatious example people see these things riding by. He never learned to drive one, but he did become a motorist in the backseat after winning election as governor of New Jersey. He knew the value of good roads. And his experience as a motorist reinforced that. In fact, Governor Wilson took several steps to improve motoring in New Jersey. He signed legislation in 1912 that called for the state to establish a 1,500-mile state highway system. We put in charge of this, Colonel Stevens explained it this way. The law of 1912, in effect, divides our roads exclusively of city streets into three classes, the state highway, the county road, and the municipal road. When he gets to the White House, he starts incorporating a little bit of driving into his day. President Wilson began work at 8.30 in the morning and saw visitors after 9 o'clock. 4 o'clock, he would stop and let off a little steam, a little recreation. Here's what the newspaper said. He has been going on automobile rides each afternoon lately, seeing Washington from the same automobile Mr. Taft used. A new automobile is being made ready for the president. Accompanied by Dick Taylor, a Secret Service man who was with him at Trenton and Princeton. The president yesterday had a long ride through the city. The two motorcycle men who followed President Taft now ride behind President Wilson. But they no longer wear uniforms. They are in citizens' clothes. It's President Wilson who initiates the first federal aid highway program, signing the Federal Aid Road Act in 1916. There is no Department of Roads this early So, it's the Department of Agriculture that pushes for it and gets it through Congress. However, he feels about cars, he knows that better roads are needed. But it's while he's in France negotiating the Treaty of Versailles that he gets a new Pierce Arrow limousine waiting for him at the dock in New York to take him back to Washington. It had just been added to the White House fleet. He favored the automobile so much that when he left office, his friends purchased it for him to use. It was made by the Pierce Arrow Motor Company of Buffalo, New York. In the afternoons when the weather was good, he and one or more of his women folk went riding in one of the White House Pierce Arrows, big open cars with right-hand drive and the President's seal on the door. He mapped out a series of routes, and the chauffeur was not allowed to deviate from them. The number one ride, the Southern Maryland ride, the Potomac ride. Going on these rides, the First Lady saw things that shocked her. She was born in a small town of Rome, Georgia, and grew up there and after her marriage lived in a series of small college towns, and the crowded, big-city backstreets and alleys of Washington were a revelation to her. We've been talking a lot about objects used by presidents and what it means and what it might say about them, right? How can you have this discussion and not talk about Washington's false teeth? Washington wore dentures throughout his entire presidency, they were not made of wood. They were really high-tech for their day. They were crafted of lead, brass, gold, and steel springs. The teeth were a combo of human and animal teeth. They were grisly at this time, but dentists at the time deemed them to be at all times preferable to anything else they could make in order to process food. Washington, it's interesting. He has, it's no legend You know, he has dental problems through his entire life. You see him complaining, but it's not for lack of care. That would be a mistake. He has a toothbrush very similar to the type of toothbrush, looks very similar to what we have today, and he's using it. He starts complaining as early as the 1750s about tooth problems. It's in age 24 when he records in his diary that he paid five shillings to a Dr. Watson who removed one of his teeth. And letters and diary entries later in his life make regular reference to aching teeth, lost teeth, inflamed gums, ill-fitting dentures, and a host of other miseries. He regularly used dental powders. By the time he took office, at age 57, he had only one natural tooth left, and that would be taken out during his presidency. He owned multiple sets of dentures. They required frequent adjusting. He's constantly writing letters to dentists. He's sending them to his dentist in New York City for repairs to be sent back. There's an incident during the American Revolution when a mail packet is intercepted by the enemy. Now, not only does it have information about the whereabouts of the American army, but it also included a personal letter where Washington is requesting dental cleaning tools from his dentist, and that's intercepted by the British. He's more mortified by that, but it's interesting because in that letter to his dentist, he said, We have little prospect of being in Philadelphia soon. So the tooth scrapers should be sent to him right outside New York City. Sir Henry Clinton, the commander of British forces in North America, sees this personal letter. And it's among many things that convinces him the American army isn't moving. And especially the fact that there's a letter to his dentist. It's like, this is genuine. It's bad for the British, good for Washington, even though he's embarrassed. They believe his claim that he won't be in Philadelphia anytime soon. It convinces... Clinton, who's in New York, not to rush to help Lord Cornwallis, who's in Yorktown and is increasingly isolated. He doesn't know that Washington and French forces are going to move down to trap Cornwallis at Washington at Yorktown. Now, what does it even matter to discuss this? One is something commonly discussed with Washington, so I just wanted to say, and it is indeed true. it's not just simply a legend somebody. He's very concerned about his appearance. This affects his appearance, how he looks, how he projects as the President of the United States. He tells a dentist that his dentures had the effect of forcing his lip out just under the nose. Here's what an article says. Always sensitive about his appearance and comportment, Washington was no doubt self-conscious about his dentures. And the troublesome contraptions also made speaking more of a challenge. He suffered a host of throat and lung-related illnesses. So he attempted to keep his mouth closed as often as possible. Artists and close observers notice in his look significant changes in the shape of Washington's face, and later pictures will show changes in the shape of his jaw and mouth. Just like the happy accident of the discovery of the letter to his dentist and the effect on British planning and military readiness, perhaps the impact on his appearance was such But he spoke less, which may have been as much of a presidential asset as it was a detriment. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash M H C B U Y B. You can get extra episodes there. Sometimes you can get an early advance on episodes that we're doing on the regular channel. I encourage you to consider that.